Thank you, thank you. Um, well, it's great to have Brian Howard back with us this morning, and I'll let him introduce his family to us in just a few moments. But uh, yeah, grateful for him being here, and he'll be here again next Sunday as we'll be up in uh, Martinez, up where I grew up, uh, for my mom's memorial service on, on Labor Day. So uh, anyway, appreciate you praying for that. I'll get more word out about that and what that looks like in the under four this week. But Brian, come, brother. Thank you so much for being here. Good. Thanks, Pat. Good morning. Good to be back with you here for week two. Uh, met, you, met many of you last week, and I've preached here several times over the last three or four years, so if you've been here much, uh, I'm a little bit of a familiar face. My family is here with me this morning. They're in the balcony, so they could spy on all of you this morning. <laughs> if I introduce each of them, though, they might not be very happy, so I probably won't do that, but it's good to have them here with me this morning. Also, um, I'm going to start, and, and I, I really want to encourage the high school and college students to listen closely to what I'm going to say, especially in the next five minutes, okay, because, because I'm going to present you with a few different things that I want you to consider as you go back to school and you think about the kinds of things that you interact with. Uh, in our culture, there are quite a few different views of what life is about, okay, quite a few different views, and you might not stop to think about these views regularly, because you might just be living life and watching television and listening to music and going to work and reading the news and observing what's happening in politics, but, but haven't stopped to consider the narrative of some of what's going on. Now, here are a few different views that our society holds, okay? Not everybody holds the same view, so there aren't only two, but here's a couple of quotes from celebrity current and celebrity past. I suppose sort of a celebrity current still, but... But the first quote is from Kanye West, who says, the point of life is getting stuff done and being happy. So that's what he says the point of life is. What's the point of life? It's about getting stuff done and being happy. One of the most prominent uh, musical artists of our day. Now, now, for those of you that are like, yep, the younger generation is all messed up. Let's take it back to your generation, to Bob Dylan, who essentially said the same thing. All right, Bob Dylan said, life is unknowable, a mystery. He said, what, and that was an answer to the question, what is life ultimately about? Bob Dylan said, life is unknowable, it's a mystery. Now, I want to give you a few views, and there's a place in your notes for you, to, for you to write these views down. Okay, I want to give you a few popular views in our society right now, and think about where you might encounter these views of what life is all about, Okay. The first view is hedonism. So write that down, and high school students, listen to this, because you're going to be, college students especially, you encounter this oftentimes on campuses. Hedonism says the purpose of life is to pursue as much pleasure as possible. That's what hedonism says, all right? A lot of people in our society live like this, including many of my neighbors. Now, a lot of my neighbors are in their, in their 50s. Because we live in South Orange County and everybody moved down there. It was a little cheaper and you could buy a house back in the 60s and 70s. And, and our neighborhood was built in the 80s. And so a lot of young families moved in in the 80s and they had little kids. And now those kids have grown up. I was just with them last night. I'll be with them again tonight because we're having a barbecue with our neighbors tonight. And a lot of them are in their 50s, mid-50s, and they're bored. They're bored because their kids are gone and they're in their mid-20s or later 20s. So you know what they do? They go to Las Vegas a lot. They go to every county fair. They go out to dinner. They're, they're gone constantly talking about how much money they want in the slot machines. And, but ultimately, they seem to be bored. And so they're looking for excitement in their lives. And they're pursuing pleasure. 
All the time. There's a lot of drinking and a lot of partying and a lot of pleasure. We see a lot of high school and college students pursuing pleasure. It's the view that says the, the highest value is that I'm happy and that I experience pleasure. And there are a variety of different ways to, to pursue pleasure, all right? But that's hedonism. Now, nihilism or nihilism says that life has no meaning and values are baseless. Recently, I was doing some coaching with seven multimillionaire CEOs, all right? So I, work, I have a coaching practice and I work with sometimes secular companies and CEOs and I'm in a room with seven men, three of them I recognize from TV, like super famous, uh, very Fortune 1000 CEOs. And they brought me in to basically, so I, you know, I'm driving to this house in Beverly Hills. There's a Maserati in the driveway. I'm in my 2005 Honda Accord, just so I can make an impression, you know. So I, I go into the, uh, I go into this, this house, and and, I, and I've worked with these guys three or four times. And one of them who has a PhD, we're talking about legacy issues. They're not even Christians, but they know that I'm a Christian. We're talking about legacy issues, and one of them basically says to me, "I don't believe that legacy matters." He said, I don't essentially believe that goals matter. He said, I believe we live in the moment. We live in the moment. We're essentially meaningless. Our lives are meaningless. We do whatever we want. And I thought, wow, I thought everybody cared about legacy issues. You know, this whole concept of like, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to look back and I'm going to reflect on how I spent my time and nobody is going to say, I wish I'd worked more. I realized a lot of people don't believe that at all. They don't really care who they hurt along the way. And a couple of these guys, and one of them is one of the most prominent men in Los Angeles, who has kids with different women, has been married multiple times, says to me essentially, no, I generally think we're insignificant and our lives are meaningless. All right, here's a third view of life. It's existentialism. All right, existentialism says that the purpose of life is for each person to act as free and irresponsible as possible, right? So essentially to be as free as possible. Now, you know the TV show Survivor? About two years ago, there was a season on that was the white collars, the blue collars, and the no collars, all right? So the white collars were like accountants and attorneys, and the blue collars were people that were firefighters and construction workers, and the no collars were people that were like free living, you know, like purple hair and I design jewelry for a living and stuff like that, you know? So like people that didn't want any rules on them, all right? Existentialism, the, the purpose of life is to be as free as possible. I know people that I went to high school with that still live like that in their late 40s. They still work as bartenders and they're just, and, and not, you know, because they, they generally don't want any rules in society, all right? Now, a fourth view is naturalistic pantheism. Now, you might say, man, I haven't heard that in a conversation lately. Like, I'm not going to walk up to a person and say, are you a naturalistic pantheist? But you'll see this all across curriculum in schools, all right? Here's what it says. It says that the meaning of life is to care for and look after nature and the environment. That's the meaning of life. Now, not that it's wrong to care about nature and the environment, but this says this is the meaning of life. This is the ultimate reason for living. It seems to be the purpose of 75% of the clubs on our high school, public school campus. It's like, we're going we're gonna to care for nature. That's the, the ultimate in life is naturalistic pantheism. Some people are willing to be arrested over environmental issues. They're willing to chain themselves to trees and be pulled, you know, not eat 
over environmental issues. All right. The next, the next popular view is humanism. Now, this is all over television and movies. Humanism says that life is personal and individual, so each person's purpose will be different. So make sure to pursue reaching your individual potential while giving thought to the common good along the way a little bit, you know? So it, it goes like this. Make sure, like American Idol, make sure and stay true to yourself. Don't violate your convictions. Stay true to yourself. Achieve your potential. It's individual over communal. So that's really popular in our society. And then let me give you one more. Classic liberalism. All right, classic liberalism, not political liberalism per se, but classic liberalism emphasizes the importance of individual liberty and the purpose of life is to defend this inalienable right. No, that's, we see that in Christianity oftentimes. We see Christianity and patriotism sometimes get all mixed up and we're not sure where patriotism starts and Christianity ends and, and, and so, so we're, when we get confused and we, we think sometimes, you know, for me, in, in emphasizing individual liberty, which actually isn't necessarily super biblical, right? I mean, b- biblical people are oftentimes way more communal than we are in our society, but the purpose of life is to defend this inalienable right. Now, not to say that there aren't elements of truth in many of these things. Not to say that you should run away from every single one of these. You should probably run away from hedonism. All right, but, so, but, right, but some of the other things, like obviously nihilism saying that, that life has no meaning and values are baseless, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's okay to care for the environment. I wouldn't say let's go abuse animals and throw our trash out everywhere. I don't suggest that, okay? It's okay to say I want to... You know, I want to achieve in life, I guess, relative to what your ultimate motive is. But, but ultimately, we have to ask, what if I'm a Christian? High school students on my campus? What if I'm a Christian? College students? What if I'm a Christian? All right? What is life about for me? And what does faithful living look like in terms of what we believe? What does faithful living look like? It's fascinating interacting with my neighbors because I spend a lot of time with our neighbors. Some of them are churchgoers, not many, but a few go to this giant church that's down in our area. And some of them that seems to affect their life and others it doesn't. And they look at us and they can tell you're a little bit different. What's different about you? They always can't put, they can't always put their finger on it, but I would say it has to do with the way that we live life. See, for the Christian, God created the world with a purpose. God created meaning for humans. And my purpose is to live in right relationship with God. So if you're a high school student and you go back to school, all right, and some of you are homeschooled, some of you go to Christian school, some of you go to public school, but but wherever you are, when you watch TV or you encounter philosophy in movies, I mean, it can be kind of miserable for me these days to watch movies because I feel like every movie I'm like, Oh, I see this philosophy, and sometimes I wish I didn't know, you know? It's like being a great musician, which I'm not, and hearing someone play the guitar and analyzing every note. You know, when you start to think, you see this everywhere. You see it in music. I was just reading about, I was reading about the lyrics of Kendrick Lamar the other day. Now, a lot of you older folks don't know who Kendrick Lamar is, but he's a super famous rapper, uh, and, and, and most of his songs are very explicit, but I was curious, because it because he had 10 songs in the top 20. Well, wow, that's a lot of songs in the top 20. It used to be if you 
broke the top 20. That was a big deal. He has 10 songs. So I was just reading. Comes out of Compton. He's really young. So I was reading about his views because it all goes into the songs that he writes. And that's, in our society, is listening to his music and being affected by his philosophy of life. And we need to know what's happening, you know? And, and if I'm a Christian, what does it mean for me to be true to myself, to my beliefs and my convictions, and to not be a hedonist or an existentialist or a humanist, but rather to live a faithful Christian life? Now, we are going to open the Bible, I promise, in just a minute, okay? But what does it look like to live a faithful Christian life? What is faithful Christian living? Faithful Christian living starts by being in right relationship with God. That's where it begins. It begins by being rightly related to God. The gospel, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that God created me to be rightly related to him, but I know that from birth I'm running away from him. And so at some point, some point in my life to be rightly related to God means that I acknowledge that and that I know that I'm not in right relationship with God and I recognize that God made a way for me to be in right relationship with him. He sent his son to live the life that I could not live, to die the death that I should have died. And so if I acknowledge that, my own sinfulness, I acknowledge and accept the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on my behalf. I acknowledge that God adopts me into his family and I'm in right relationship with him. Now, what's, once that has happened, what does faithful Christian living, living look like? Now, much of this is written about in the scripture. Okay, so Ephesians 1 through 3 talks about how to be rightly related to God. And then Ephesians 4 through 6 talks about how to live once I'm rightly related to God. Now we're going to talk today about what it looks like to live once you're rightly related to God. Now, I'm going to give you a summary of the text that we're about to read before we open it, okay? The text that we're about to read is one that we would often pass by without giving it much thought. Have you ever been like in a one-year Bible reading plan and you're reading and all of a sudden you haven't even realized you've read 16 verses, you passed them and you thought, I don't even know what that said, but I might as well keep going. You know, this is one of those passages where you would pass by this oftentimes and you'd think, well, that's not one of the exciting passages, all right? But Paul is in prison when he wrote these words, likely in Rome. My wife and I were in Rome a year ago walking around the Roman Forum, saw where they think Paul was in prison when he wrote this passage. That's a fascinating thing, right? So Paul's in prison. He'd earlier, so he's in prison in Rome. He'd earlier planted a church in the city of Philippi, and he's writing back to his friends in this city from prison. Now, Paul would really like to go back to see his friends in the church that he'd planted, but he can't go back because he's in prison, right? And so he's hoping to send his young protege, Timothy, back to visit them soon, all right? And he also says in the text that he's going to send back someone named Epaphroditus, all right, who the Philippians had sent to take care of Paul while he was in prison. But Epaphroditus had gotten really sick and almost died while he was taking care of Paul. Paul says, so now it's time to send him back to you, but I want you to honor him because he has served me and served Christ. I wanted to explain that to you so that when we open this, you understand what is happening in this text. Now we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and I want you to see what faithful Christian living looks like in a, in a flyover passage. You know the flyover states? You don't live there because it's Nebraska. You just fly over and you think 
probably cold and there's a lot of corn down there. I don't want to live there. We have an ocean view here, all right? So this is a flyover passage that has tremendous significance for our lives. Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. Here we go. I hope, in the, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Verse 25, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now, a quick reading of these verses, and you might be tempted to read by them without paying much attention, and ask yourself, why are these verses even in the Bible? Like, have you ever decided to go through the one-year Bible, and you're super excited in Genesis, because all kinds of stuff is happening in Genesis, and then Exodus happens, and you're like, man, the Bible's awesome, and then you get to Numbers, and you think, why have I failed at the one-year Bible for 21 years in a row, right, or whatever? You know, because you get to Numbers, and you think, I don't understand all this, and there's all these, you know, we're counting all these people and you just think, oh my goodness, can I hurry up and fast forward to some killing again? Like in the book of Joshua where it's rated R, right? See, this is one of those passages in the New Testament where you think, what's the point of this? Why is it in the passage? And I like these kinds of passages because if we believe the Bible applies to us, then we need to know why God sovereignly decided to put this in the Bible. Bible scholars here believe that Paul is giving us a couple of examples for faithful Christian living right after talking about it earlier in Philippians 2. Now, most of you have probably, if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard the first part of Philippians 2 preached because it talks about what Jesus did. Jesus came to earth and he humbled himself to die on a cross. Therefore, you should esteem others more highly than yourself. If you have kids, we've taught our kids, think of others before yourself. And then Paul goes on to give this, to give this section, all right? A couple of examples for faithful Christian living. Now, I, I want us to see four examples or four keys to faithful Christian living that are in this text, Philippians 2. All right, here we go. Once you are rightly related to God, faithful Christian living is Jesus' cause over my plan. Jesus' cause over my plan. Now, Kanye West says, life is about getting stuff done and being happy. That's what he says. He says, that's what my cause is about, getting stuff done and being happy. The existentialist says, life is about being free 
in living in the moment. Man, buy a convertible and drive Route 66 and quit your job, Thelma and Louise, and drive off a cliff at the end of the movie or whatever, you know? So that the existentialist says, life's about being free and living in the moment. But what does the Christian believe about faithful living? What do I believe as a Christian high school student? I'm not a high school student. I used to be many years ago, right? But, but what should I believe about Christian living? All right? It's Jesus' cause over my plan. Now, now what is Jesus' cause? We see it in Luke chapter 4. I preached this to you a couple years ago here. We see Jesus' cause in, in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. We see it all across the New Testament, but this is a great summary of it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what is Jesus' cause? Jesus was on a mission to bring freedom to people from spiritual poverty, spiritual blindness, spiritual slavery, and spiritual oppression. So Christian living is Jesus' cause over my plan. To seek and to save the lost. To be on mission wherever I am. To see people as created in the image of God and as sheep without a shepherd. On Friday night, we were at a high school football game. It was Edison. Maybe some of your kids go to Edison. Darn you, Edison, who beat our football team 48 to 47 on Friday night. All right, 48 to 47. Now, we know kids that go to Edison, too. We lived in Huntington Beach for five years, and my kids have friends who go to Edison. And it was Edison versus Tesoro, which is where we live. So Edison drove down to the dark side, to South Orange County, where it's hot and dry and the houses are cheaper. And, uh, and they, they rolled in with their green and yellow, and they played us in football. And it was an exciting game, and we were sitting in the stands, and there's like five different things going on at a high school football game. There's freshmen trying to act cool, you know. There's a thousand cheerleaders doing, I don't know. And then there's the marching band. They've, they're doing their thing. We've got a son in the marching band, and so that's a whole different, you know, the marching band parents are there to watch the marching band, and it's like, who cares if there's a football game going on? You got the football people there. Those are all the big, huge men that are 45 that wish they were still playing football, but... <laughs> But they have bellies out to here now, right? So you got all these things going on, but there's thousands of people at a football game. And I said to my wife, I said, man, I love all of what's going on here. You know why I love it? Because the most beautiful place in the world is where the most people are. Really, because God created people and people are created in his image. And I know sometimes we can feel like, ah, people are exhausting, especially being out in society. And, and sometimes we are exhausted by people. But also, like, if I look at society as Jesus' cause, I'm going to look around all the time and I'm going to see people as lost, like sheep without a shepherd. I'm going to see people that God created to know him. I'm going to see people as created in the image of God and, and, and yet running away from God. To seek and to save the lost, to be on mission, to see people as created in the image of God as sheep without a shepherd. Now, where and how do we see this in the text? This is how Timothy lived. Timothy was concerned for the interests of Jesus Christ over his own interests. Look at verse 21. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul's giving an example here. And he's saying, look, look, Timothy promotes Jesus' cause over his plan. Now, apparently, Jesus' cause 
over my plan was really rare even back then. Because that's what Paul says. And it's still really rare today. Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ. Verse 30. You, don't you think Epaphroditus could have just stayed at home? I mean, he goes to Rome, a hostile environment, to take care of a guy who's in prison, gets sick, and almost dies. Why did Epaphroditus do that? Jesus caused over my plan. Now, what does Jesus' cause over my, my plan look like for us? All right? First, understand that you are positionally right with God, and you don't have to work hard to earn God's favor. I don't have to lead people to Christ so that God will like me more. You're already okay because you're already positionally right with God. All right? But then next, is the mission of Christ on your mind daily? Do you understand your identity? Do you see people with compassion as sheep without a shepherd? In your neighborhood, do you feel like those people, oh, I hate those neighbors. Like, you know, my neighbors, we've got some neighbors that are about 140 years old. All right? They only come outside really occasionally. Yesterday, I saw a rat run across their backyard. Well, those rats come into our yard because they haven't been outside in so long. Their yard is a complete disaster. They're super old. I told you they were 140, you know? So they're not that old. But, you know, I can feel like, oh, those old neighbors, you know? Now, we've got neighbors that are 20 years younger than us. They don't take care of their yard. They, you know, and then I can feel like, oh, those neighbors down there, they do this and this and this. I've got all different kinds of neighbors, you know? But if I walk into my neighborhood and I think Jesus caused over my plan, I see my neighborhood through Christ's eyes. And I see the, the people at that football game through Christ's eyes. And, I, and you want to see the people on your high school campus through Christ's eyes. That, that kid who constantly gets picked on, you don't want to jump in and pick on that kid. Christ wouldn't pick on that kid. You don't want to be a part of that. Because Jesus caused over my plan. Seeing people as sheep without a shepherd in my neighborhood all the time. All right? Here's a second thing. Faithful Christian living is other people over myself. Other people over myself. Jesus' cause over my plan. Other people over myself. Look, from the time we're children, we think about ourselves, right? Our preferences, our, our, our comforts, our pleasures, our needs. Parenting is one big act of trying to teach your kids to think about other people before themselves. You know, isn't that, it's like all day, every day. Don't just think of yourself. Think of other people. Now, Paul's just finished teaching this in the first part of Philippians 2. He says this in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then Paul illustrates this through these guys. So Timothy is a model of showing genuine concern for the welfare of others. Epaphroditus risked his life to help others is what verse 30 tells us. It says he risked his life to help others, right? And Jesus modeled putting others before himself. Existentialism, hedonism, naturalistic pantheism, nihilism, right? What? What does what is Christian, Christianism say, all right? What does Christianity say? It says, others over myself. Now, what does it look like for me to put others over myself? 
Recognize what God has done for us when we didn't deserve it is a good start. You understand that you have no right to feel proud of yourself over other people. Well, I'm a Christian and those other people are losers. You know, boy, those other hedonists and and people that just party all the time. That kind of reminds me of the Pharisee who was like, hey, look at me when I pray. I'm amazing, not like that sorry publican over there. All right, so recognize that whatever you have, God has given you. You understand that? Whatever you have, God has given you. And you didn't deserve it. Therefore, you have no right to see yourself as superior to others. And so we put others over ourselves. Others over myself and my family. Men, let me talk to you for a minute. Men, everybody else comes before you and your family. There's a book, I haven't read it, but it's a great title. It's called Leaders Eat Last. I think that's a great title. I would say dads eat last. Everybody else gets served before you. Others over yourself. For 19 years, I've been a parent, and I've tried to teach my boys. I'm the chief servant in our family. I read that in a counseling book written by Wayne Mack 20 years ago. He wrote a book on biblical counseling, marriage and family, and my wife used to work under Wayne Mack at Master's College. Uh, and, and I read that, that what it means to be a man is it means to be the, the chief servant in your family. And so others over myself and my family, others over myself in my neighborhood. I don't always feel like spending time with my neighbors. You probably heard me talk a lot about this because we do, but but others over myself in my neighborhood, looking for opportunities to serve the people in my neighborhood. Others over myself as a philosophy of mission. So I'm basically saying I see myself as a servant wherever I go. And then others over myself in all spheres of life. So faithful Christian living doesn't mean achieve my potential, pursue pleasure at all costs, individual liberty. It means Jesus' cause over my plan and others over myself. Number three is serving over my own comfort. Faithful Christian living is serving over my own comfort. Hedonism says pursue pleasure. Existentialism says live in the moment. Humanism says stay true to yourself and reach your individual potential. Faithful Christian living involves serving over my own comfort. All right? Now, in the text, verse 22 specifically says that Timothy served it specifically says that Epaphroditus gave his whole life to serving. That's what we read about with these men. In Mark 9, 35, Jesus called the 12 and he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. I mean, you know, I was, I was listening to an interview by Tony Robbins. I don't think Tony Robbins is a Christian, but I was living, listening to an interview by him and you think, boy, the last time I heard a Tony Robbins quote at Calvary Baptist has been a while. But, but, I, but, you know, it was just interesting what Tony Robbins said in this interview. And I'm not quoting him as a Christian. I'm quoting him just as a, a self-help sort of guru. He says, the best way to do business is to serve more than everybody else. And I thought, he's probably not even a Christian. And his, what he said in that interview is, I try to out-serve everybody else. And I, I thought, wow, as a Christian, faithful Christian living, Jesus says... Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus modeled service. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so Jesus taught about the value of service several times. He he talked about the importance of serving the poor and the sick and the heartbroken. The New, New Testament is full of exhortations for us to serve each other, to pray for each other, to build each other up, to teach each other. Yesterday there was a party in our neighborhood, one of our 
neighbors through this party and we try to say yes whenever we get invited to stuff so we got invited so we go over there yesterday it was around that fight last night you know some of you maybe saw it maybe some of you didn't I probably wouldn't have watched it honestly if we weren't invited over to this gathering but we went over to this gathering because we try to go to where our neighbors are and and it was a you know our neighbor our, our neighbor he's a single guy with a couple girls divorced he grilled ribs and everybody brought side dishes and he had several TVs out, and there were 50 or 60 people there. We knew maybe 20 or 25 of them. And we spent time talking with our neighbors and getting to know people and that sort of thing. And then the fight came on, and everybody huddled around the TVs for a little while. And then the fight was over, and everybody left. But you know, you know what we did? Now, I'm not, again, I told you last week, I'm not holding this up as an example of perfection, but of an example of commitment here, trying to work at this. We grabbed a couple of trash bags, and we helped pick up trash. Now, I did not, I hate picking up trash. I was picking it up thinking, man, this is why I went to college. I don't want to pick up trash. I don't, I've always hated picking up trash. There's nothing in me, personality-wise, that ever wants to clean up trash. Never. There are some people that just are wired like that. They like that sort of, for me, it's just, no, it is like. And so I just thought, we can't leave our neighbor friend to clean up the trash from 50 people as a single dad. So we, st now, there were some other people that aren't Christians that were helping pick up trash. But my motive and my wife's motive was we wanted to be seen as servants. I don't want to go to somebody's house, walk out, leave them with all the work, because I want them to look at us and say, man, those people came over and they helped and they served. And not many people did that. Most people left. Now you might, we didn't share the gospel with anybody yesterday because we're looking at this as long term. So I try to, we try to serve in our homes. Now moms, I know you're already, you serve as a lifestyle Thank you for serving us all day, every day. But dads, you need to serve. And we need to serve in our neighborhoods. And kids, you need to serve. All right? Because that's what faithful Christian living looks like. The New Testament is full of exhortations for us to serve each other as Christians, to pray for each other, to build each other up, to teach each other. So faithful Christian living involves serving over my own comfort. Now lastly, number four, okay, is Faithful Christian living, I love this, love it, love it, love it, is ordinary over spectacular. Faithful Christian living is ordinary over spectacular. Now, we're tempted to read these verses and think, man, this is kind of boring, this passage. In fact, unless, maybe you guys have taught through Philippians in the past, you know, I've been here maybe 20 times, so maybe somebody's taught this text before here, I know not super recently, but... But you might say there's no pigs running off a cliff in this passage and nobody getting swallowed up in an earthquake and no demons haunting people and there's no hobbits. Like, where's all the excitement in this passage? You know, where, where is it? It's just two guys living the Christian life day by day, which is about what the Christian life is. You understand that? Romans 12.1 tells us that our whole lives are an act of worship to God, Right? In Romans 12, it says, take your ordinary, everyday life and offer it as worship to God. Because all of life is spiritual. Work, having children, hobbies, friendships, yard work, commuting, all of it is spiritual. All of it is an act of worship. So listen, Christianity is not about doing the most radical things for Jesus. Sometimes you can feel like unless you are India in India, dying in a hospital from malaria, you're not serving God. You know, some, my wife and I were talking about some people we know. It's almost like unless you're about to get killed, you're not serving God. And I would say, man, then you could feel like life is just mundane. And yep, 
I mean, Michael Horton, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary in San Diego, wrote a book called Ordinary. I, I think it's a great book. I, I encourage you to read it. He essentially, and he wrote it as, there's, there's a couple of books out there that are not about ordinary Christian living, you know. And so books like Radical, written by a great guy, David Platt, you know, I think he wrote that book. It's still a good book, but, but Michael Horton said, look, most of life is not radical. Most of life is ordinary. It's about waking up and going to work and showing up in your neighborhood every day for five years and letting God work. All right? So for most of us, like Epaphroditus, faithful Christian living involves pouring our lives out little by little in practical acts of service day in and day out, having a lonely person over for dinner, babysitting for a single mom, inviting some international students over, doing foster care, praying with a friend, picking up some trash after a party, helping someone move, visiting someone in the hospital, and so on. All right, day after day after day. I just listened to a podcast called The Power of Incrementalism. All right, it was actually about the spread of the gay rights movement in our society. And what it said essentially is that we think that one day, all of a sudden, society was different. I mean, but actually what the podcast said is it showed for 30 or 40 years these small steps, boom, 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 the power of incremental change. The other day I, I plugged into a retirement calculator. If I had started saving $300 a month when I was 24 years old, which I did not. Now, I don't recommend this or you'll get really discouraged, all right? If I had saved $300 a month when I was 24 years old and just put it in the S&P index, I would have $1.1 million today based on the real return of the S&P, which I did not do. All right, so the power, and you think $300? Why? Now, $300 back then felt like a tremendous amount of money, you know? But still, the power of incremental change, ordinary over spectacular, all right? Showing up day after day after day. This passage in Philippians 2 involves a guy delivering a gift to Paul and getting sick along the way. And Paul says, essentially, he served well and he should be honored. Now, as you go out and live life this week, and last week we talked about your work, today I'm talking about just faithful Christian living. This applies to every one of you at school, at work, in retirement, in your neighborhood, as you interact with your family members that are frustrating to you, right? With all of that, it's Jesus' cause over my plan. It's other people over myself. It's serving over my own comfort. And it's ordinary over spectacular. That's faithful Christian living in light of what Jesus has done for us in making us right with God. Father, I, I pray that we would be encouraged by this text today. I pray that we would not think that we somehow have to do amazing, spectacular things to be right with you. That first of all, we would understand that we are right with you through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then I also pray that we would have our eyes open to various philosophies that we encounter in our society that tell us to live like this or live like this or live like this. And I pray instead we would realize that there is a way to live out a Christian worldview, faithful Christian living. We see it in the scripture, so may we be people of the word who open the Bible and read it. We're people of TV sometimes more than we're people of the word. And so as we are encountering philosophy all the time, may us help us understand the clear teaching of your word in terms of what faithful Christian living looks like.
And I pray that as we go out and we live ordinary lives, serving, putting your cause over our own plan, serving over our own comfort, just ordinary over spectacular and others over ourselves, I pray, God, that you would continue to build our relationships with each other and to draw more people into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.